So we're continuing on in this portion, uh, verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, and today we're going to highlight the sixth verse. As we come back to the text, let me remind you that as Paul begins to enumerate our spiritual blessings in Christ, he starts with the things that God the Father has done. And so... We pointed out previously that uh, each of the persons of the triune God are mentioned here uh, as, uh, you know, participating specifically in this great work of salvation. But initially, it's uh, the work of God the Father that the apostle is uh, concentrating on. And so uh, we've seen so far that God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's chosen us before time began to be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us to adoption as children uh, by Jesus Christ to himself. And so Paul goes on and he says that he's done all of this according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of of the glory of his grace, or as some translations read, uh, the one that we read here today, the ESV, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. That's the title of the message. His glorious grace uh, versus his great grace. But when we talk about God's grace, if we understand what it really is, If we really get hold of this thing of having been saved by grace, we shouldn't be able to speak of it without using terms like amazing grace or marvelous grace or wonderful grace, Uh, even the superlative matchless grace. You see, because once we really get uh, a grip on this whole thing of God's grace, that, that's what we realize. We realize this, you know, grace is, in a sense, it's, it's insufficient to really describe the wonder of what we're talking about here. It's amazing grace. It is um, marvelous grace. It, it's wonderful grace. It's It really is matchless grace. The person who wrote the hymn, Wonderful Grace of Jesus, I think this person really, really got it when it comes to grace. Really, uh, it, you know, really, really sunk in with this person. They, They understood what this whole idea of grace is all about. In the refrain to that hymn, Uh, These are the words that we read there. Wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. And then he says this, broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus Praise his name. You see, that's it. God's grace. It's broader than the scope of my transgressions. It's 
uh, as, as he declared here, it's greater far than all my sin and shame. It's through God's grace that all of this stuff is covered. And it is, as he said, it is really matchless. The grace of Jesus is matchless. There's nothing like it. Now, a lack of praise for his glorious grace, which we do suffer from many times. And, and this is, I, I think it's a problem, especially in the, in the larger culture. People don't understand God's grace at all. But even in the church, many times, there, there's a lack of praise for God's glorious grace. And this lack of praise for God's grace uh, I believe it stems from three things primarily. Number one, from a low view of God. Uh, if, if we fail to praise God for his glorious grace, it's because we really don't understand who God is. We, we oftentimes, uh, we, we have a very low view of God. We need to have a a biblical view of God, a clear view of God. Secondly, not only do we have a low view of God, but we tend to have a high view of ourselves. And with a high view of ourselves, that will, that will prevent us uh, from appreciating fully the grace of God. You see, it's only when I see myself for who I really am and then realize what God has done in saving me, oh, that's when his grace is magnified. That's when my heart burst forth in praise. And so a low view of God, a high view of ourselves, and then thirdly, an ignorance of the magnificence of God's grace. So when we have a proper view of God and a proper view of ourselves, when we see clearly what grace is and what grace has done, our response, the the only response really, the proper response will be to the praise of his glorious grace. And so let's look at each one of those things today. Let's, let's look at God. It, we need to make sure that we've got a proper view of God. Now, of course, we talk about God. We believe in God. We read the Bible that we uh, believe to be God's word. But isn't it true that so often our our thoughts of God are so far below who he really is. Now, some of that is, a, is somewhat understandable because God is, at the end of the day, he is incomprehensible. Now, incomprehensible doesn't mean that we can't comprehend him in any way. It doesn't mean that we can't uh, know him. But what it does mean is that we could never fully comprehend God. God is beyond our ability, and that's because he is, first of all, he is infinite. God is infinite. We are not. God is infinite, meaning that he is limitless. He's boundless. Uh, His eternality would be, in a sense, part of his infinitude. And and these are things that, you know, honestly, the human mind cannot really uh, fully grasp these things. If we could fully grasp God, then our minds would become God because God would be subject to our minds, but we we can't fully grasp God. But I think many times we we even fail to realize um, what we we do have the capacity for. We, We fail to realize that. We don't think of God 
in as great of terms as we ought to. God is infinite. Now, the Bible gives us different ways that we are to educate ourselves in the knowledge of God. And one of the ways the Bible gives us is the study of nature. Um, the Bible encourages us uh, to, to look at the heavens. The Bible tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day after day utters speech. Night after night shows forth knowledge. So through nature, God teaches us things about himself. Uh, we read in the eighth Psalm, uh, David uh, went out in the evening as he would as a shepherd boy and he would uh, lie there under the, the starry sky and he would look up at the heavens and then he would pose this question. He would say, when I consider the heavens, the work of your uh, fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, David would say, what is man? And you see, when we start to get some kind of an understanding of who God is in the sense that he is infinite, this is what happens to us. We, we, we realize his greatness. We realize our smallness. And then we think, God, how could you even take note of me? How could you even care about me? You know, a few years ago, I was uh, watching a film produced by the Discovery Institute, and it was a film that had to do with kind of kind of the heavens declaring the glory of God. And, you know, it was talking about the planets and talking about the solar system and talking about the stars and, you know, all of those different things and showing uh, photos from the the Hubble uh, telescope and, and all of that. And at one point, there's a photo that comes up and it's just, you know, just this, um, just this vast uh, expanse of, of light, which are the stars. And then in, in the middle of this, there's, there's this little dot. And the, the difference, you can, you can see the difference. It's kind of a blue and a green. And it stands out, but it's just so small in the midst of this. And then the, the narrator on this thing, he, he, he informs you that that little speck you're seeing right there, that is the earth. That is the earth taken from, uh, this is a photo taken from a telescope, you know, somewhere uh, out, in the, out, out in space. And as I sat there watching that, I have to confess that I was disturbed. I, I was I was bothered by this. It, it, was, it was almost like, it was a little bit frightening, honestly. It, because I, you know, it was one of those things where I just suddenly got a, a little bit of a picture of the greatness of God. The Bible says that God, uh, he spans the heaven in his hand. So the heavens, this, this thing called space that is so incomprehensible to us. We, we don't know how, uh, we don't know how vast it is. They keep coming up with different, you know, uh, figures to try to measure space and they, they keep changing it because it seems like it just goes on and on uh, infinitely. It doesn't. It does have a, a boundary at some point, but we don't know where it is. But again, my point is this, for, for me in, 
in looking at that, I just suddenly, there's something came over me uh, regarding the greatness of God that was a little bit disturbing. It's like, wow. But then, of course, the, the wonderful reality is that God who made that, who's disturbing me right now at his greatness, that God loves me. That's wonderful. That's the great thing to know. So we need to understand who God is. We need to have a proper view of him. He's infinite. Secondly, he's almighty. He's almighty. He has all power. And he's all-knowing. He knows everything. Maybe you've heard this before, but in, in your DNA, there is enough information in your DNA to fill every page of Encyclopedia Britannica. Anybody here have a set of Encyclopedia Britannica? <laughs> I, I used to have one, and I think it was like 20 volumes, and there are at least seven, 800 pages each volume. I mean, this, this thing is massive. And yet in, in your DNA, in my DNA, there's enough information to fill the Encyclopedia Britannica. And listen to this. Remember this. Your DNA and mine are different. All of our DNA is different. And of course, every living creature has DNA. And all of that information, that information has been placed there by God. God knows everything. He is almighty. He is all-knowing. All of that information and, and much, much more. You know, we think of uh, the capacity of computers today. You think of like a, you know, a 16 gig or a 64 gig or something like that. And, you, you know, you're increasing in um, your capacity for more and more information. And, and you just think that that is... That's nothing. It's, it's, it wouldn't even measure in comparison to the information that God has because he has all information about everything. He knows it perfectly. He knows it all simultaneously. This is God. This is who we're talking about when we're talking about this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this one who has done these things for us to the praise of the glory of his grace. He is almighty. He is all-knowing. You know, sometimes I, I just, I get so annoyed by, you know, the, the intellectual elite in, in our culture who... Uh, speak so arrogantly about things. I read something this past week. I can't remember what it was that they uh, discovered. Oh, I think it was supposedly like the head of a triceratops that looked like a parrot or something. Uh, but you know, it, 67 million years old, you know, that's, that's how old they labeled it. And you know, I, I think of the audacity of that. I think, you know, here's man and our, our best is you know, let's just stretch it out as far as we can, 120 years. So that's as long as anybody's going to live. The, you know, in the past 100 years, how many people have lived to even be 120? Probably just, you could probably count them on one or both hands. So, you know, 80 years, 90 years, 100, 120, stretch it. That, that's, as, that's as far as we're going to go. But we're going to pontificate about 67 million years? 
That is just so absurd. But then to even go further and you hear people talking about, oh, well, you know, 200 billion years ago, this, that, and the other thing happened. Are you kidding? You know, we, we don't know this, but we think we do. But God, of course, he's truly great. He does know all those things. He is all powerful. He is infinite, but he's also holy. He's also holy. And holy means that he is absolutely pure, perfectly pure, morally pure and spotless, undefiled. God is so holy, he's so absolutely pure that we, even on our best day, could not bear to be in his presence. We see that in scripture. We see that with men like Job. We see that with Isaiah. We see that with Daniel. They have these encounters with God. God reveals himself to them. What happens? They fall down as dead men. That's what the holiness of God will do. God God being holy is that he is so pure that we could not really look at him and live. So God is holy, and then he is righteous. And righteous are, uh, holy is, is more the root, and righteousness then would be the fruit. So the righteousness of God proceeds from the holy nature of God. So this is just a, a brief glimpse of who God really is. We have got to train ourselves through the scriptures, through meditation on the word of God, through um, the study of, of the creation, through nature, we have got to educate ourselves on who God really is. You see, because if we have a low view of God, we will lack in our appreciation for his grace. A low view of God, secondly, we end up with a high view of ourselves. So we need to get the proper view of ourselves. Let's start with where we started with God. God is infinite. We are not. We are finite. We're creatures. We're creatures of time. We have limitations. We have boundaries. We have a lack in certain capacities. We could dream about things. We could want to do certain things. We can imagine things, but we have no ability to actually accomplish them. Now, some people, of course, will tell you, oh, you can do anything you dream to do. Well, uh, there are limits to that. There are things that you just can't do because we're finite. We're not infinite. And we are far from almighty. We are fragile. We are fragile, even on our best day physically. We have no guarantee that at some point during the day, we might not just suddenly fall down dead. It happens all the time. You hear stories of people who are in uh, the picture of health, you know, worked out every day, perfectly fit, made sure they're, you know, they were really disciplined in their diet. They didn't smoke and they didn't drink and they, you know, got plenty of sleep and they did all this. And you just thought, man, this person is the, you know, this is the epitome of a healthy person. And then you hear that person just drop dead out of nowhere. Suddenly it happens because we're fragile. The reality is we are much more fragile than we think we are. We think we're invincible sometimes, but we're far from invincible. A little microscopic germ can level us so quickly. 
It's amazing. We're fragile. This is who we really are. And then we are ungodly. We're ungodly. We're impure. All of us, that's just, that's who we are. In our deepest heart of hearts, we're not good in our deepest heart of hearts. No, we're far from it. We're the opposite. We're evil. We're self-centered. We're self-driven. We're, we're uh, lovers of self to the exclusion of anything that would uh, infringe upon our own will or desires. We are ungodly. We are unrighteous. The difference between those two things biblically is uh, ungodliness pertains to our responsibility to God. Unrighteousness um, is talking about our failure in regard to our responsibility toward one another. And this is true. This is who we are. We're finite, we're fragile, we're ungodly, we're unrighteous. Now, of course, people would take issue with that. The first two, it's hard to take issue with, finite and fragile. Uh, some people would argue, well, I'm not ungodly. Well, any failure to live uh, to the total glory of God constitutes ungodliness. So we are ungodly. Some people say, well, I'm not unrighteous. Well, unrighteous is any failure to live according to God's standard in relation to our fellow human beings. I think we're all unrighteousness. We're all unrighteous. We've all failed to do that. So a proper view of God, a proper view of self. But then we come to a proper understanding of grace. So here's where we tie these things together. You've got God up here in his infinitude in his almightiness, in his um, omniscience, him knowing everything, in his absolute purity, in his righteousness. Here's God up here. Here we are down here in our finiteness, in our fragile state, and in our ungodly state, and in our unrighteous state, and in our unholy state. But this God, who owes us nothing, and who doesn't need anything from us. This God does something to remedy our problem and to bring us back to himself. Not because he owes us anything or not because there's some deficiency in himself that he has to do this in order to be fulfilled. God is perfectly fulfilled within himself. So why does God do this? He doesn't look at us and go, oh, you know, there, there's that spark of good. I just can't resist. I, I see that good goodness there. I've got to fan that to, you know, into a flame. There's no spark of good. There's nothing. All of this comes out of the heart of God himself. And what does he do? A proper understanding of grace. In order to have that, we've got to realize this. The creator became part of the creation. This is what God did. Now, again, it's only if we understand his uh, infinitude or his transcendence, how other than the creation God is. If we understand that, then to get an idea of him not only coming into the creation, that's not the most magnificent thing, although that itself is magnificent, It's the fact that he became part of the creation. That's what God did. He created everything and then he became part of it through the incarnation by coming into the world. Now, God could have still, you know, been um, in, in some ways 
benevolent toward man without this extreme. God could have just kept at a distance and sent angels and done different things and, okay, we're going to, you know, kind of like the superhero type of a thing. I'm going to send somebody down to help those people. And uh, God didn't do that. God entered creation himself. The creator became part of the creation. In the, the incarnation, God became a real man. Jesus was not a superman. He was not half man and half God. He was a real man. He became a real man. The creator became part of the creation. Secondly, the creator identifies with sinners. Jesus comes and he doesn't keep himself aloof from sinners. He identifies with us. And we see this spelled out in his baptism. And John the Baptist kind of understood this because when Jesus came to be baptized, John the Baptist said, wait a second. Wait, no, no, we got this backward. You should be baptizing me. And you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, he said, go ahead and do it. He said, because it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. And people have wondered, what, what was Jesus really talking about there? Well, what was happening? What was the baptism of John? It was symbolizing um, a baptism of repentance from sin. But John understood this. Jesus didn't have any sin. So what is he doing being baptized? What he was doing was he was being identified with sinners. That's what his baptism was. It was a point of identification with us as sinners. And so the, the creator becomes part of the creation. The creator identifies with sinners. But then thirdly, the creator is numbered with the transgressors. This is even more mind-boggling. That this infinite God that we're talking about, this pure, holy God that we're talking about, he actually allows himself to be numbered with the transgressors. And that's what was happening on the cross. Jesus, what, remember the picture? He's there between two criminals, right? And he is being identified as a criminal. He's being numbered with the transgressors. And you see, this is all that God did for us through his grace. He did this all through his grace. When I was watching that film the other night, you know, there's the, the scenes, of course, because it's the, it's the life of Christ. So they take you from the earliest stages right on up through the crucifixion. And um, in watching the, the portion that dealt with the um, the suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane and then going on to the abuse, uh, the trial, the beatings, the, the scourging, and then finally the crucifixion. You know, honestly, as I sat there watching that, I just thought, and of course I know this is a, a depiction of it, but nevertheless, it's, it's close enough. I, I sat there watching and I just kept thinking, Lord, I can't believe that you did this. I can't believe it that you did this, that you came into the world for this purpose, to save me 
And this is how you had to go about it. This is how it was accomplished by you being numbered with the transgressors. And you see, when we get a proper understanding of grace, it's going to lead us to that kind of response. I can't think of a better response to grace than the hymn that was written, probably the most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace. That's the perfect response because that's what happened in the life of John Newton. You know the story of John Newton. He was a a slave trader. He was a captain of a slave ship. When he was a a young boy, his mother prayed for him and uh, she instilled the, the scriptures into his life, but she died when he was seven. And uh, he wasn't really cared for all that well. And it, by 10 years old, he was on a ship and he was sailing the high seas. And by the time he was 23, he had his own ship. And he was making trips back and forth from England to Africa. And he was bringing slaves. And he had fallen into deep sin and debauchery and just the typical things that, you know, people living that kind of lifestyle, he would go into the ports and do the things that normally would be done. And, and he was just living in a state of absolute wretchedness. And yet, as he was making his journey back to England on one of those trips, there, there came upon him a storm like he had never encountered in his whole um, career as a sailor. This storm was so vicious, he was absolutely certain that the ship would sink and that he would die. And he cried out, for God to save him. And he did. The Lord met him and saved him and saved him from the storm and and brought him back safely to land. And of course, he turned away from all of that and he became a minister of the gospel. And later he would write this great hymn in which he would say the famous line, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He got it right. That's who we are. We're we're wretched before the holy God. But this great love that he's had for us, a love so great that he purposed in himself to redeem us, and he did all of this to the praise of his glorious grace so that we might just be trophies of his grace so that we might just then spend our lives thanking him for his grace and basking in his grace and being dispensers of that grace. You know, when you realize that you're saved by grace, you know what that results in? It results in a lot of grace toward other people. Because you you realize, you know, God did this for me, had this mercy on me. I, I didn't deserve it at all. If I do not see my own wretchedness and I somehow think that I, you know, I, I somehow deserve this. And when I think that way at all, I fail to praise God for his glorious grace. It's only when I see how absolutely undeserving I am, that's when everything changes. Now, Paul goes on to say in the remainder of the verse, he said, 
by his grace, we have been made accepted in the beloved. We've been made accepted in the beloved. Do you realize that because of God's grace, you have full acceptance with God? Acceptance is such a huge thing, isn't it? Nobody wants to be rejected. Everyone wants to feel accepted. You know, in our, in our culture today, there's a big move to make sure everybody accepts everybody. Because in the minds of many people, and in a sense, rightfully so, uh, rejection is bad. We need to be accepting, people say. Well, it is a wonderful thing to be accepted. It's a, it's a very unpleasant thing to be rejected. If there's one person that could justifiably reject us, it's God. But here is the amazing thing. By his grace, he accepts us. He accepts us by his grace. He has made us accepted in the beloved. And he has made us the righteousness that he requires through Christ. The righteousness that God requires is there in Jesus and God takes that righteousness and he puts it on you and he puts it on me. And let me say it again. I've said it before. Listen, you are perfectly righteous before God if you are in Christ today. You are perfectly righteous. You can't do a thing to to make that righteousness any better because it's a perfect righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks at you and when he looks at me, He doesn't see our wretchedness. He doesn't see our impurity. He doesn't see our sinfulness. He sees Christ. And we are accepted in the beloved. Now, this word accepted is very interesting. Just about wrapping things up here. But this word accepted is really interesting. uh, The Greek word is used only one other time in the New Testament. So here's a word that's used only here and one other place in the New Testament. Let me read it to you, and you'll get the picture of where it's used. It's actually found in Luke 128, and here it is. Rejoice. Here's the word. Highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Highly favored one. That was what the angel said to Mary that she was highly favored. She was accepted. It's the same word. So we can look at it and we could see it as this for ourselves. We are the highly favored ones. Think of Mary. Out of all of the women that would ever live in the history of the world, she is alone is chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. And why is she blessed among women? Because Christ is going to dwell in her physically. But listen, we're blessed because Christ dwells in us spiritually. Just as Jesus dwelt in her physically, he dwells in us spiritually. That's what it means to be in Christ and to have Christ in us. And as Paul says to the Colossians, it is Christ in us that is the hope of glory. So did you know that today that you are highly favored? And just like that angel came, And spoke those words to Mary. Rejoice, highly favored one. 
the angel could come here today and say, rejoice, highly favored ones. We've been highly favored in the beloved. That's who we are, highly favored, blessed among all people, accepted in the beloved. Now, let me ask you this. When you think about this, does your heart leap with praise? It should. It should. When you think about this, uh, does, does praise burst forth from your lips? It should. And if it doesn't, it's because we have a low view of God. We have a high view of ourselves and we haven't really understood this whole thing about God's grace. But the more we get to understand it, So do this. This is how we grow in understanding God's grace. Meditate more in the word. Read through the crucifixion portions of scripture. Meditate on Isaiah 53. Look at Romans chapter one. It's a picture of who we are. Look at Ephesians chapter two. That's a picture of who we are. And then think about what God has done. Go out at night and look up into the sky and look at the stars. Look at the moon and realize that the God who created these things, the God who sustains the world, look around at nature. Look in a microscope at your blood or something like that. And in all these things, connect them back to God. And then remember that this this is the God that bestowed grace upon us through Jesus. And this will absolutely bring the response that God is seeking to the praise of his glorious grace. That's, That's all God's seeking. He wants a bunch of people that are walking around, not boasting about themselves, talking about how good we are, how much better we are than this person or that person. He wants people walking around going, man, God is good. It's amazing. I can't even believe I'm saved. I can't even believe he had mercy on me. I can't even believe he loves me, but he does. And guess what? He loves you too. You see, as we we experience greater Uh, understanding of God's grace and we're more filled with God's grace than we become dispensers of God's grace. And may that be so. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your glorious grace, your amazing grace. And Lord, would you help us to really just grasp these things? Lord, we know that we need help from you even to grasp this as Paul would later tell us that he would pray for us, that we would be illuminated, that we could understand these riches of your grace. So Lord, help us to grow in grace, to grow in our understanding of it, to grow in our experience of it, and to grow in our uh, dispensing it toward others. Thank you for your amazing grace. And Lord, I would just pray for any today, if there's a single person here that hasn't been a recipient of it, that they haven't yet uh, 
received your grace. I pray, Lord, that their hearts would be open today, that they would know that you, the infinite, almighty, all-knowing, holy, righteous God, love them. Even though they're ungodly, even though they're unrighteous, that you love them. And Lord, that you want to bring them in and cleanse them of their sin so you can pour abundance of grace upon them. 